All right, well, we will be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. I know that I've kind of gotten you in the habit now of having something on the screen, and unfortunately, we won't have that today. Um, But I know that you can keep up anyways. I believe in you to be able to do that. Martha, as you're turning there, um, I want you to think about this. And Martha actually got into some of the, um, what I want to talk about. There you are. I knew you were somewhere around here. Some of the stuff I wanted to get into as, as part of my intro and just thinking about a time when you've truly been hungry, when you've truly hungered and thirsted in a big way. For myself, the longest I've ever gone without food was 30 hours. And that was because of this thing that um, a youth group that I worked at in Virginia when I was in college did called the 30-hour famine. And it was a means of uh, raising money for kids, I want to say in Africa, who didn't have food and providing food for them. But the longest that I've ever gone without food is 30 hours. The longest I've ever gone without water is probably just a few. For a lot of us, we don't actually know what it's like to truly hunger, to truly thirst, to truly have a desire for something and to know what it's like. But I want you, if you ever have been truly hungry, truly thirsty, truly desiring to be satisfied with something like that, to just as this morning, as we're considering this beatitude here in in the Sermon on the Mount, to consider what it felt like to desire something so bad, to, to hunger, to thirst for something so bad, and to say, I can't wait till I get to it. Our text for this morning is this, in Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient Word of God. Let's pray. Fathers, we come together this morning and read your Word and consider what it is that you have for us here. Our prayer is that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the Scriptures to us. Give us the understanding that we need to grasp what it means, not just to to like the idea of righteousness, but to hunger, to thirst, to desire it in a way that maybe some folks haven't ever felt here. For those who have lost their hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord, I ask that you would give that to them again. Lord, help me to preach your word, the way that you'd have me preach it this morning. And all this, would your name be glorified? Would you be made great? In Christ's name, amen. Our main idea this morning is this, and I'll read it twice if you want to write it down. True disciples have a desire for righteousness that only Christ can satisfy. True disciples have a desire for righteousness that only Christ can can satisfy. Now, we have been working through this idea, these Beatitudes, and we've seen that they're not just things that we should necessarily aspire to, though it's good to want these things, but these are actually the marks of a true follower of Jesus. He is getting ready in the Sermon on the Mount to lay out what it looks like to live in God's kingdom But he wants us to understand before he gets to the how-to that he tells you the who. Who can actually do this? Who should be aiming and trying to do this? For whom is it to aim to do all these things? It's just to try to make yourself righteous before God. And he says that 
He's identifying in the attitudes, this is what a true disciple looks like. And if you're a true disciple, if you're one who's actually part of the kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom, then you're going to aim to do all the things we're going to see coming up in the next few months here on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount. We see this next piece logically. I'm going to explain in just a moment how it actually works out logically that we get hungering and thirsting for righteousness next. But it's a righteousness that we can't obtain on our own, obviously, because we hunger and thirst for it. It's not something we can create in and of ourselves. For us, as humans, when we desire food, we can't just make ourselves stop being hungry and thirsty, right? Maybe for a little bit you get satiated, maybe for a little bit the pain goes away, but you can't just make yourself not hungry. Something from the outside has to come in and make that change. As we consider that what the world hungers and thirsts for, and you probably, before you were a Christian, what you hungered and thirsted for, more often than not, what people want, the thing they look at and say, if I can just get this thing, I, just, I want it so bad, I can taste it, is happiness. That state of being blessed. We'll do anything in our power to want to obtain happiness. To want to obtain the satisfaction that says everything's okay. But here's the thing. When we do that, we're getting it backwards. He's not trying to give us that blessing. He's identifying that those are blessed who have this righteousness. And what I hope you'll understand is that when we get Christ's righteousness, it will lead to happiness. It will lead to blessing. But just like a doctor would be a very bad doctor, if you came to them and said, my arm's hurting, and they say, that's too bad, let me get you some pain medication, and really it's broken, that doctor would be a bad doctor if they didn't set the bone and they just gave you some pills, right? Would that be a bad doctor? Yes. In the same way, I'm not here just to say, hey, here's how you can be happy and blessed. That's something that's going to come from this. But this morning, my job is to tell you how you can be made righteous. And what it looks like to hunger and thirst for it. So let's walk through this and see how we get to hunger and thirsting. First we see, and we saw a few weeks ago, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are those people who have realized, they've come to the realization, I cannot make God happy on my own. They realize that spiritually they got nothing in and of themselves. They become poor in spirit. Now this leads to Blessed are those who mourn. Because see, when you're poor in spirit and you realize that you can't make God happy because you're a sinner, your natural response to that sin is to be excited about it. No, to mourn it, to hate it, to want to do everything you can to get rid of it. Which brings us to blessed are the meek. And we saw last week that meekness is doing things in God's time and in God's way. For a lot of us, we can try and go to strong arm so many situations. And the worst situation that we can try to strong arm and get our way in is obtaining salvation and being made right with God. Because we can try to strong arm ourselves and say, well, I did this and I did this and I did this. And, and say, God, look, see, I did all these things for you. You have to give me what I want. You have to give me salvation. But see, there's something different that happens. You don't go and grab it for yourselves. It's something that comes from the outside. It's something that you don't have within yourselves. It has to come in God's way. And God has a way of making us 
righteous. And so every Christian, every person who's a Christian is going to be hungering and thirsting for it. And here's the thing. An evidence that God is working in you and, and leading you to that place of becoming a Christian is that he's creating a hunger and thirst within you. See, that's the thing about what we call regeneration, is it's a process. Regeneration is just the, the, the process of salvation. And it starts with God causing you to be convicted of sin. Remember that burden that we talked about maybe last week or the week before in Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress? He has this burden on his back. You're convicted of your sin. And you realize that you can't do anything about it. And so for us, we need righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. There's two kinds of righteousness we're going to talk about today. The first is personal, or excuse me, positional righteousness. And I'm, I'm going to use some bigger words today, but I know you can handle it, okay? Positional righteousness. This is the kind of righteousness that, another word we're going to say is justification, okay? Like, do justice, but then leave off the E and then A-T-I-O-N. Justification. You'd see it up here if I'd have made the slides, but we didn't. We need to be made right. So in this process of regeneration, we feel a conviction of sin. We know we can't make ourselves right with God. And then, at a certain point, God changes things. He takes our sin and he gives us Christ's righteousness. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is a passage that's called the Great Exchange. It is well known as being the great exchange, and here's what it says. I'll give you a moment just to get there. Second Corinthians five twenty As Paul is giving the Corinthians an idea of what it means that they have been called to be ambassadors for God, that they're reconciling the world to God through the gospel, it says this, He made the one who did not know sin. Who is that? Jesus. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him, that is in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. There's an exchange that happens at the point of salvation. You see, God doesn't just come in and say, okay, no more sin, don't worry about it. He doesn't just make us a blank slate morally. Because a blank slate is not good enough to get into heaven. You understand that? Just not having sin is not enough. You have to be righteous. And so, on the cross, Jesus takes your sinful record and it is put onto him. Imagine him wearing it. And on the cross, he pays the penalty that you were supposed to pay, death. But something else happens, because it's not just a one-way gift, it's an exchange. So you get his righteousness. So as you come to hunger and thirst for righteousness, this isn't a righteousness that you work out on your own. It's a righteousness that comes from somewhere, and the place that it comes from is from Christ. Now we see in Philippians 3, a similar, this is a passage we went to a while back. So turn over, turn over to Philippians 3 for me, if you don't mind. 
You might remember this from a few weeks ago. As Paul is talking about the fact that he has nothing. We talked about this when we talked about how Paul is poor in spirit. Though he has so many things going for him. He was incredibly religious. He had nothing. Here's what he says. But everything that was a gain to me, I've considered it to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. Your righteousness will not cut it. If it would, then you wouldn't hunger and thirst for it because you could achieve it on your own. It would be something that's inside of you, but it's not. It is something that exists outside of us. Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness, okay? And we don't mean Mork and Mendy and Area 51 and any of that kind of stuff, right? We mean an alien righteousness that means it is not something that is natural to you. It is not even of this world. So we can maybe say it like that, but it's an alien righteousness in the sense that it is not yours, it comes from outside of who you are. It's Christ's. We can't get it from obeying the law. We can't get it from being religious. We can't do it from helping old ladies across the street. We can't do it for fill in the blank, whatever it is. It's only through Christ. And the only thing on our side that we do, and it's a, even that is a gift from God, is faith. Your position before God, if God is working in your heart to change you and help you to see that you need him, is that he's helped you understand you're a sinner. That's, that, that is being poor in spirit. That is mourning your sin. That's becoming meek. You're not trying to do it on your own and your own power. And at that point, then, all you can do is look up to him and say, I need your grace. I need what only you can give because my destiny is death. And only you can save me. This is your positional righteousness because at that point when God gives us the gift of faith and we believe in Christ and what he has for us, which is his righteousness traded for our sin, our position before God changes. We're no longer enemies, but now we're sons and daughters. We're no longer outcasts, but we're part of the family. And so your position changes. Basic stuff, but great truth. Amen? Now, there's another kind of righteousness. It's a righteousness that flows from this positional righteousness. It's called justification. This righteousness is called progressive righteousness, or maybe we'd call it sanctification. Sanctification is just that process of being made holy. And when we say being made holy, it's not that we're becoming so great ourselves, but it's that we're trying to become more and more like Christ. And we see here the other side of that in Philippians 3. Verses 10 and 11 keeps on going. And so this is a great passage to see that idea of Christ's righteousness given to you and your, you growing in righteousness after salvation. Because there are people who get all muddled on those kinds of things, okay? And think that it's all your righteousness or it's all Christ's righteousness. That's legalism and license. That's saying, on the legalism side, you can do whatever you want. Don't worry about it because Christ died for your sins and so you just live however you want. I'm sorry, that's license. Legalism says that you, Christ doesn't even do the first part. You have to do it, and that's all on your own. 
we see here that we have a righteousness that's not our own. It doesn't come from the law. And then he says, verse 10 and 11, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Over time, our righteousness, our practical righteousness, we might call it, our sanctification, should be a pattern that is becoming more and more like Christ all the time. Okay, And really and truly, it would be great if it was just this, right? So if this, if this is the beginning of life and this is the end of life, wouldn't it be great if our sanctification was from down here, you're a terrible sinner, to up here, you're like Christ, and then you just like cruise like that for the rest of your life? That'd be great, wouldn't it? It would even be great if you started down here and you had a straight line going up to Christ-likeness and just the whole way, you can expect the same trajectory the entire way, right? That'd be great, wouldn't it? From terrible sinner to like Christ, and it's just, that'd be great, wouldn't it? What's the reality? The reality, it's like this. It's, and you like do a loop here, and like you go down. And so that is what actual becoming like Christ is like. And so for you, maybe you're in that loop, maybe you're down in that trough, whatever it is. And you say, what, how do I know that I'm actually becoming like Christ? How do I know that I'm going to reach the resurrection from among the dead? That's that new life. That's the being in the new heavens and new earth. That's the hope of the gospel. Well, verse 10 tells us. First of all, it's knowing him. For so many of us, if you're like me, and I, I talk about this a lot, but maybe you're a person who just likes to think a lot. I like to sit and just think and ponder and read books. And the thing is that I can know a lot about God. And there's days where I, where I have to step back and say, I can know a lot about God, but I need to actually know God. Do you know a lot about God? Or do you actually know him? Because those are two entirely different things. We want to know who Christ is. And we want to know the power of his resurrection. You want to know what the power of his resurrection is? That you are willing to actually enter into his suffering. That you're willing to be conformed to his death. If you want to know if this is you, if you are hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that is making you sanctified and more like Christ, it is that you are dying to yourself every single day. And when I say dying to yourself, I don't mean you're willing to wake up early and go work out, Okay? Like you're kind of you're kind of like sacrificing something. That's not dying to yourself. Dying to yourself is whenever you come into conflict with someone, you're willing to look at that person and say, whatever it is that I did, I want to repent of it. Even if I don't think I was wrong, that's dying to yourself. It's looking and saying, I want to be part of a Christian community and volunteer in that Christian community to do whatever I can to advance the kingdom of God in Pleasant Gardens Baptist Church, even though maybe I'm a little short on time. That's dying to yourself. Maybe it's taking time out of your busy schedule to disciple a young man or woman, or an older man or woman, someone who's new to Christ, or not as far along as you are, and you're willing to sit down with them and say, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus, and let me help you figure that out. That takes time, over a long period of time, and that's dying to self. It's saying that whatever I have that is for me, I'm willing to forego that and be about the kingdom. You want to know if you're being progressively sanctified? Are you dying to self? Are you knowing Christ more and more, and are you loving him more and more? That's how you can have the hope that one day you have a resurrection from among the dead. Unfortunately, most Christians today do not hunger and thirst for these things. 
Most Christians don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They don't hunger and thirst to die to self. So many Christians, or at least professing Christians, hunger and thirst for things like an experience. Whatever it is, have I cried at least two or three times this week? There's nothing wrong with crying. That's, that's, that's all well and good. But some people just go and they want to have, I just need, I need to have a spiritual experience. Will it make me weepy? Some people want to satiate their conscience by their works. They want to go and do good things. They want to go on mission trips. Right? They want to build things. Building ramps is good. I'm glad we have a ministry that, build ramp, that builds ramps for people who are in need. But if you're trying to satiate that desire for righteousness through that, it will never satisfy. Most people hunger and thirst to escape hell and just ease their conscience until they get to the end of this life. That is not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's hungering and thirsting for an escape from punishment. And those are two entirely different things. So for you, if you're a professing Christian, my question to you is this. What has been the hungering and thirsting that you've had over your life? Has it been for Christ's righteousness or not? Now we're going to talk about in a little bit, if not. But if that's really the case, if you say, I hunger and thirst for his righteousness because I know that I'm not right without it. I hunger and thirst for his righteousness because I want to be like Jesus. Then I have good news. He tells us that if we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, we will be filled. We are going to get it. To be filled with something. If you ever have been hungry, you know how sweet it feels to be able to go in and eat a big old burger. If you've, if you've ever fasted or gone a long time without food, right? To get a big old glass of water. I mean, it's cold, it's cool, it's got ice in it, right? And you just chug it. And you finally are satisfied. You're finally filled with that thing that you want. It's what you've always wanted. And here's the thing, Psalm 37, 4, which has some connections to a beatitude before, tells us this. That God gives us the desires of our heart. He gives us what our heart desires. Isn't that good news? It is, unless what your heart desires is not good. We actually see this in the life of the prodigal son. We won't turn there, um, but you probably know the story of the prodigal son, right? He's a son whose dad has some money, and because he's not a great son, what he says essentially is this, Listen, um, you're not dead yet, and I really want your money, and I'm not willing to kill you, so I'm just going to ask for your money. But he's saying essentially that you're as good as dead to me, right? You are better actually to me dead than alive, because I want only what you can give me. I don't want you. I don't love you. I only want what you can give me. And so he goes, and what does he do with all that money that he gets, his inheritance? Squanders it, right? Spends it. It's gone. And the only job that he can get is tending to some pigs. And if he is a good Jewish boy, which he probably was in this context, though it's just a parable, a story that Jesus is telling, but he's talking to a Jewish audience, the only job he can get is tending to pigs, and pigs are unclean. This is the lowest of the low that he could probably get in that context. And for him, it's not just he can stay far away, but he's in there in the pen with them. It says, then he went into work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. 
He longed to eat his fill of the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Now, this, if you're, if the, it, the kids may have told you, if you're in the VBS lesson, you'd know these are little carob pods, right? Like we, around here we have bean trees. It's a kind of bean, it's like a fat, flat bean that grows on a tree or a bush. And they are not, like I would not want to eat these for fun, okay? If you eat them fresh, I'm sure they're che- chewy. If they get kind of dry, they're, like, it would just break your teeth, I feel like. And all he wants is to eat his fill, from the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one would even give him that. See, for him, after all of that time, he was hungry. He wanted to be filled. But he didn't want to be filled with love for the Father. He didn't want to be filled with that relationship. He wanted for his stomach to be full. John Darby says this, to be hungry is not enough. I must really be starving to know what is in God's heart toward me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed on the husks, but when he was starving, he turned to his father. The hunger of this beatitude is that which only the father can satisfy. See, you will be filled, but it's going to be filled with only what God will give. Lloyd-Jones says this. He's talking about this concept. He says it means a desire to be free from sin. That's what to be filled means. This hunger, or this hunger and thirsting, excuse me, for righteousness. It's a desire to be free from sin because sin separates us from God. And my question for you this morning is this. What is it that you really desire to be filled with? Is your hunger and thirsting only to satiate your conscience? Is it only to fix your current situation? Or is it to have a right relationship with God? Is it to get back with the Father? What you desire is what you're going to be filled with. And that's the thing about God, because God gives us the desires of our heart. And when we desire and hunger and thirst for righteousness, He promises through Christ to give it. But for so many people, they don't want that. All they want is self, their own desires, to do things their own way. And the scary thing is that when God sometimes gives people up to that and says, fine, go, have it. If you don't want to be with me, go, fine. You can be separated from me forever. But our promise is to be filled. Are we filled in two ways? Filled with Christ's righteousness positionally. Right? This is the justification thing. You have been filled. If you're a Christian, you will continue to be filled. And here's the thing. It actually will fill you up. If you truly know Christ, it becomes all of you. It becomes your identity. The question for you, Christian, is this. Are you actually filled? Are you satiated? Are you satisfied? Are you filled up with Christ's righteousness? Because if you know that all the righteousness that is filling you up is not your own, but it's from Christ, what happens is that when you are cut, you bleed gospel. But for so many of us, when we get cut by other people in the church, we don't bleed gospel. We don't bleed dying to self. We don't bleed Christ-likeness. We bleed something else. Sinfulness selfishness, 
me, me, me. If you want to know if you've been filled, what do you cut or what do you bleed when you're cut? The other thing that we're filled with is Christ's righteousness progressively, sanctification. And here's the good news. If you desire it, if you want it, if you want to be made more like Christ, God will give it to you. He will answer that prayer. If there is sin that you're struggling with and you say, I want to quit doing this. I want to quit being angry at my wife and kids all the time. God will give you deliverance from that. It may take a long time, but he will because sanctification, though it is like this, the trajectory is heading to Christ-likeness. If you say, I'm addicted to something, like images on a computer, like food, like the praise of man, whatever it is, you say, I need it all the time and I can't quit it. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, God will give it. And here's the thing, it may not be what you want on this side of eternity, but you will get it. For the believer this morning, I have to ask, if you've made a profession of faith in Jesus, what are you hungering and thirsting for? Is it for God and who he is? Think about it. When you woke up this morning, what is it that was consuming you? Because if you've ever truly been hungry, that at a certain point consumes you, right? It's all that you can think about is how bad you need a burger right now. And some of you are already at that place right now, right? Because you see that we're getting close to 12. And it's already consuming you. And I would tell you, I'd encourage you to hunger and thirst for righteousness instead of that burger. What is it, though? What has been consuming you this morning, yesterday, this whole past week, this whole past month, this past year, your entire life? What consumes you? What takes up your time and effort and thoughts? What are you hungering and thirsting for? Is it God and who he is? Is it righteousness and the removal of sin that separates you from him relationally? Here's what we have to understand. Just because there's a separation that is now gone positionally, we're now in the family of God, doesn't mean that there can't be separation that happens relationally. You can be in the family, but go run off to your room and shut the door, right? If your kid runs off and shuts the door, parents of teenagers, are they still in your family? Just because you're not talking a little bit? And they don't really want to talk to you right now? Yeah. Separation can happen relationally, even though it's not happened positionally. Christian, is that where you are right now? My encouragement to you is to continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness, both positional righteousness, that is Christ's justification from the cross, and practical righteousness, progressive righteousness, that you are aiming to be conformed to Christ dying to yourself every day. But the question for you, and I believe really and truly the Holy Spirit is working right now in your heart and your mind to help you know, he is pointing out right now, what that is that you're hungering and thirsting for more than him. And this morning I encourage you in our time of response to pray and give that up to him and ask him to give you a hunger and thirst for the right things. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a hunger and thirst for righteousness of any kind, it should really, truly give you alarm. For you who's here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you have a hunger that's going to go on until it's satisfied. 
We know that if you're hungry, over time the pain may dull. It comes in waves. It'll pop up for a while and go away, and then pop up for a little while longer and go away. But until you eat, until you drink, until you finally get what you've been needing, you will never be satisfied. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you've never looked to Him and said, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me from my sin. I need you to be my King and I'm going to follow you as my King. Understand that the pain may be dull now, but it will never go away until you're satisfied. Understand this, that you may walk out of here if you're not a Christian, and go. And you can go on a trip and drill wells in Africa. You can go and help old ladies across the street. You can go, and you could, you could link up with our ramp builders and build a ramp with them for someone in a wheelchair. You could do all kinds of things. And if you do that, and all that you're hungering and thirsting for is to satiate your own self and not to have Christ's righteousness, what you're doing is drinking salt water, thinking that it is going to satisfy you and it's going to kill you. Because if you drink salt water long enough, hoping to be satisfied, eventually your body's going to shut down. It cannot handle it. It will kill you spiritually. I hope that you will recognize yourself in the prodigal son and understand that maybe you've been hungry for something, but what you've been hungry for is to not be in your situation. Hunger for Christ. I know that for you, there are things that this world can't satisfy. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And to add to that, I want to switch it around a little bit and say if there is a righteousness that you desire, that there's nothing you can do to satisfy it, it means that you are made to be filled with the righteousness of another. And that's Christ. Turn to him today. We'll finish up with this before we close and have our time of response. I want you to understand that this is... We've talked about hungering and thirsting, but most of us have never really thought about, like I said, we've not gone a long time without food or water. But there was a magazine called Eternity Magazine. Dr. E.M. Blakelock writes of a story of Major V. Gilbert, who was part of the British liberation of Palestine during World War I. And they were driving up to Beersheba, and there was a combined force of the British army, the Australian army, and the New Zealand army. And they're pressing on to the rear of the Turkish retreat over this arid desert. And for them, they had to keep up with this Turkish force to try to defeat them. And so they were outdistancing the camel train that was carrying their water, but they knew there was a mission that had to be done. Their water bottles were completely empty, and the sun is blazing down on them. If you've ever been to the desert, you can imagine, right? I mean, I've just driven through the desert when I lived there for six years, and it makes me thirsty driving through the desert. Now imagine walking, marching after battle, okay? Here's what Gilbert says. Our heads ached, our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare. Our tongues began to swell. Our lips turned to purplish black and burst. Those who dropped out of the column were never seen again, but the desperate force battled on to Sharia. There were wells there, and they had been unable to take the place by nightfall. If, if they had been unable to take the place by nightfall, thousands were doomed to die of thirst. 
We fought that day, writes Gilbert, as men fighting for their lives. We entered the station on the hills of the retreating Turks. The first objects which met our view was the great stone cistern full of cold, clear drinking water. In the still night air, the sound of water running into the tanks could be distinctly heard, maddening in its nearness. Yet not a man murmured when orders were given for the battalions to fall in, too deep facing the cisterns. He goes on to describe the stern priorities, the wounded first and then those on guard duty, and the com- then company by company, and it took four hours before the last man had his drink of water. And all that time they had been standing 20 feet from a low stone wall, and on the other side were thousands of gallons of water. And they're waiting to get to it. I believe, Major Gilbert concludes, that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on that march from Beersheba to those wells. If such were our thirst for God and for righteousness, for his will in our lives to be done, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit would we be? Understand this. Without Christ, that is us. He is the only water that can satisfy. He is the only well that we can draw from that will give us anything. We are those who spiritually, our heads are aching, our eyes are bloodshot, our tongues are swelling, our lips are black and bursting. That is us. That is you. The only thing that can satisfy is Christ. This is how desperate we must be for his righteousness, both to save us and to make us like him. Are you desperate for him? Are you desiring him? And are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Let's pray. Father, as we consider this, would it be true of our church, would it be true of Pleasant Gardens Baptist Church, that the people who make it up would hunger and thirst for you, for your righteousness? Lord, maybe first of all, we'd be a church that is truly a church of regenerate believers, truly a church of those who know you. And Lord, if there are those who are here either visiting or who are even part of this congregation and made some profession of faith but don't yet actually know you, would you, would you lead them to have that desire? Would you put that hunger and thirst in them for righteousness? Would you call them from darkness into your marvelous light? And Lord, may we as believers, those here who do, who do follow you and know you, may we hunger and thirst for your righteousness to become more and more like Christ to do what Philippians 3, 9, or 10 and 11 say, to die to ourselves, to enter into Christ's suffering. May we hunger and thirst for that kind of righteousness, to be like Jesus, and may it change how our church thinks and lives and operates. And may we, as we aim for righteousness, true righteousness, may the world see it and see that we're different. And would you put a hunger and thirst in them for the same? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.